Welcome to Season 2 of the Adult Children Voices Across America Speakers Meeting Podcast. You can attend this meeting live on Thursdays at 6 p.m. Pacific Time using the Zoom ID 848-5208-0640, password 061120. For more information about adult children of alcoholics and dysfunctional families, visit adultchildren.org. The following speaker share from Stephen was recorded on November 4th, 2021. I'm Stephen, and I'm an adult child. Um, I would take a moment and thank Dottie because uh, it was quite a road to get here today, where I think we had picked three different dates, and I had been traveling for work at the last minute and wasn't aware of that. Um, we talked about August and then October, and, and this date worked out really well. Um, Dottie's also aware that I had a concern about our 12th tradition, and that's going to play a part of my story, but I want to say that because my critical parent said I must not identify, I can identify as an adult child, but I must not identify on a public forum as being part of a program. My loving parent said there's got to be some kind of compromise. And, uh, you know, I really, I prayed about this and uh, I talked to my sponsor and my grand sponsor and really didn't come to um, a solution. But I want to tell you a quick story, which, which brought me to a solution. I was working in Maui this summer, which was, well, I was working for family, but um, it had its pluses and it had its minuses. And some of the minuses were, um, I was irritable and discontent. And it, I'm standing in the ocean it can't be any more beautiful. I'm looking at the sun and I'm thinking, why am I so miserable? Why am I so unhappy? Why am I so miserable? And I, and I, I started to talk to my higher power and I wanted an answer. And I didn't get an answer while I was standing in the ocean. And I wanted a solution. I wanted it to be removed. And I didn't get it removed while I was standing in the ocean. So later on that night, I have a, I do a program call every Sunday with a fellow traveler and I'm telling him just how miserable I am and family of this. And, you know, I want to have a good time. It's paradise, all these different things. I'm, I'm basically complaining and he's listening. And he says to me, you know, Stephen, I think that if you were in a better spiritual condition, this wouldn't be bothering you. And I learned two things. The first is when I'm not in fit spiritual condition, the last thing I want is for someone to tell me I'm not in fit spiritual condition. But the second thing I learned was he was right. And so I realized that it is impossible for me to talk about a spiritual solution without talking about my program, which is uh, ACA and the steps in ACA. So I'll qualify very quickly. Um, I have a home group beyond mere survival. Uh, I'm moving to a different home group, a sponsee, and I started a LGBTQIA meeting called A Safe Place for You. And we meet on Wednesday nights online, and we meet on Thursday nights here in San Francisco. I am the chair of the ACA Intergroup, um, and I've been working with the last three years on a bid and to bring the World Convention to San Francisco this April. So we're all really excited about that. I did not think I was an ACA. I didn't think I was a, I had a counselor who, who um, recommended that I check out this program. And I, uh, I just didn't think I belonged. Uh, my dad has been sober. He got sober in 1968. My mom got sober in 1966. There was never alcohol in the house. My dad was a drug and alcoholism counselor. We never talked about alcohol or alcoholism or any secrets for that matter. But 
you know, after a little while, the counselor handed me a pamphlet and it was our, it was our 20 questions. If you have, I think we've seen things like this, you know, in the beverage program, it'll give you 20 questions. And at the end it says, you know, if you have two or three of these things, you may be an alcoholic. And, um, you know, and I think when I, when I read something like that, I feel relief. I feel like, oh, okay, there's a solution. Oh, okay, there's hope for me. But when I read the 20 questions, are, are you an ACA? I had a very different experience. I'm getting goosebumps, actually. I had a very different experience, and it was the experience of shame. Here I am sitting in a counselor's office that I've been working with for quite a while, and I feel seen, and it's terrifying. I felt as if she knew something about me that I had been trying to hide, something about my family that we had all been keeping a secret. I did not find relief. It was awful, awful. But I did take a chance and I went to a meeting and I was told to go to six meetings before I made a decision. And there were, um, there were a couple of women in that meeting, one who was my sponsor today, but um, they really just told me to be gentle with myself and, and keep coming back. And that was a difficult thing. And I, I think it's important to say this, um, especially for newcomers, because for the first six months of coming to meetings, I would feel sick to my stomach or I would feel so much anxiety or I would wake up in the morning and just not want to get out of bed to go to a morning meeting. I never felt better after a meeting. And now when I hear newcomers say that, there's this kind of knowing laugh throughout the room. Like, oh, I remember what that was like. You know, why would I continue to go to meetings if I felt worse afterwards? The answer for me is one of my favorite lines in our readings. It's uh, where it says, look around you and you will see others who know how you feel. I didn't believe that. I saw people with stuffed animals. I saw, we had a, a, a table with crayons. I saw people sitting over there. I saw people crying on their shares. And I could not believe that there were others who knew how I felt. And I also didn't feel safe. And, you know, I remember saying to someone, you know, I think that I, uh, this is going to change in a, in a little bit later in the steps, but at the time I thought an ACA's greatest fear was that we would become, we would start talking and I would come unraveled or unglued was the word that my dad would use to describe uh, my mother and all the women in our family. I would come unglued and somehow all of my feelings would come out like a, like a waterfall or a torrent and they'd be un I would be out of control. And someone said to me, Stephen, you've spent decades building these walls and these fail-safe uh, kind of processes to keep your feelings in. <laughs> They're not gonna come down in a meeting. It's not gonna come unraveled. The insanity is that I thought that, that made me feel okay. Someone tell me that I had repressed my feelings and my true self so much that it wasn't gonna come out in a meeting made me feel better. And I think that's really, that leads to the kind of insanity, the kind of insanity that, that, um, that I entered this program with. I went to the program for six months and I remember reading uh, Tony A's, oh gosh, yeah, I forgot the name of his book now, but um, you know, it's available on Kindle. 
And there's a part in his book where he says, um, you know, basically, if you, uh, he basically says, I'll use my language. If I have uh, a substance abuse program or problem, I probably shouldn't be working the ACA steps until I get that one under control. And that's, that didn't make sense to me. <laughs> I thought, no, 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 no. My problems are my parents. My problems are the home I grew up with. The problems are uh, being a queer child in upstate New York in the 70s and 80s growing up in this home. That was my problem. And if I worked these steps, all my other problems would go away. And it was becoming apparent that that not only wasn't that true, but I was reaching for something outside of myself as things were slowly starting to come up in ACA, I was reaching for something outside of myself to fix this. And this is a spiritual disease. It is a physical disease to the extent that I uh, abandoned myself by not taking care of myself physically, going to the doctor, getting to the dentist, getting exercise. Um, it's a mental disease. It affects the way I think. We talked about insanity. It's an emotional disease, but it's also a spiritual disease. And I'm looking for something outside of myself, something physical to solve this. I'm looking for something um, mental, a self-help book, um, you know, being moved, you know, through poetry or art. None of those things outside of myself could address the spiritual center. So what I wound up doing was leaving ACI. And I was reassured. I was told that um, you always have a seat here. You know, we welcome you no matter what. I also found some reassurance in a lot of the people in that group had been in, well, I know in ACA, we cooperated with all of their 12-step programs. That's what our tradition says. So I can talk about the other programs in a way that I wouldn't be able to in Alan. But um, there were people in that program that I admired who had 20, 30 years in these other programs and said to me, you know what, take care of this and come back later. And so I did. And I was 22 months into that program when I had my ACA bottom. So I, I talk about my, uh, I've been in the program seven years, but I, my, my, since uh, 2014, but my, my ACA sobriety date is December 7th, 2015. You know, um, it's hard to understand what a relapse might look like in ACA, but our, actually our literature is quite clear, right? I admit I have a problem. I'm willing to do the work, right? But there's this other part. <laughs> uh, I, I, I'm, really, I'm sorry, I admit I have a problem. I um, understand there's a solution, but am I willing to take suggestions? And when all those three things were met, met that's when I describe uh, the beginning of my ACA journey. So coming up on six years as a, working the steps. I'll just tell you one more thing about that. Well, there's two things. One, how did I hit my ACA bottom? My parents have talked about suicide since I was a child, since I was 12. My brother has recently shared with me that he's remembered that since he was 10. So he's two years younger than me. And so uh, something had happened and um, my mother was uh, institutionalized because of something my dad did basically to protect her. My dad was screaming at me on the phone. I went to an ACA meeting at seven o'clock. I ran to an eight o'clock meeting in another fellowship. I went across town to a 10 o'clock meeting. And then I was uh, headed to a midnight meeting when my dad was screaming in my ear and uh, two sponsees sent me a photograph. 
and was a photograph of them lying on the grass. And it said, thank you for showing us a new way of life. And in that moment, it dawned on me that I wasn't put here to fulfill my parents' emotional needs. It wasn't my responsibility to protect my mother. It wasn't my responsibility. Well, I'll share this later. I wasn't here to, I wasn't here to fulfill my parents' emotional needs. I've been going in and out of meetings for 22 months, keeping my seat warm, not working the steps. And in that moment, something clicked. And so I reached out to the counselor that had originally told me about ACA. And she said to me, I will work with you on one condition. You need to go to the big Sunday morning meeting, which is at 1030 in the morning. Um, before COVID, it was about, it, it's a, it all changed between speaker and book study. When it was book study, it's about 80 people. When it's speaker, it's about 60 people. Now that in COVID, it's about 105 people. And, um, and I said, I would do that. The other thing about my AC bottom, and this is important when we talk about God's will later on, tensionless humor, love, and respect. I was in a meeting and I heard uh, a husband of a friend of mine share. And for some reason, I felt this instant attraction to him. And to make things worse, he felt an instant attraction to me. And he started acting on it. And I knew not just from a, up here, but I knew in here, I didn't want to act on it um, because his husband was one of my best friends. And this happened at the, about the same time I was having my ACA bottom. And I talked about it with this counselor because I couldn't understand this feeling, this, this, this feeling I had. And she helped me to understand that the seven-year-old boy in me had connected with the seven-year-old boy in him that what I thought of as love, that feeling that I have that I thought of as love is what functional people call pity or heartache or yearning. That's not what functional people say love feels like. And I didn't know that experience. I didn't know the an alternative experience. But when I heard that, it was easy to, to, it was easy to see it right away and let it go. I came into this program with an image of my dad as a monster, and I believed my mother was a saint. I grew up in upstate New York. I told you my parents got sober in the 60s. They met after I was born. Uh, my dad and my mom stopped going to AA in 1974. So I was not familiar with the concept of a dry drunk. <laughs> now I'm very well aware of it. Um, I, later on, when it comes to a topic of what are we doing to enlarge our spiritual condition, I can tell you what it looks like to not enlarge my spiritual condition or my parents not enlarge their spiritual condition. But, you know, I was, it was suggested to me that I don't get a sponsor, which is unusual because, you know, in other programs, we get sponsors or I get sponsors. But it was suggested to me that I get a step study group. And that really made me uncomfortable, this thought of um, other people. <laughs> it was hard enough to talk to a sponsor. How was I going to talk to other people? And, uh, but, you know, this Sunday morning meeting has a step study coordinator and they put together step study groups and arrange space for them to meet. And I got into a step study group and we we're about step two, step three, when the group kind of self-destructed. 
And, uh, and I talked to my counselor and, and her, she said, you know, it's okay to leave. That was not something as an AC I believed. I thought that I needed to perfect it and I needed to see it through no matter that as the ship was going down, I need to be there. And she said it was okay to leave and I left and I was okay. And I would say probably that was probably in October and January of the next year, uh, they started a men's step study. And so I worked the steps the first time in a men's step study group. We met, we went to the morning meeting from 30 to noon, and then we met from 1230 to two. I think that I want to talk a little bit about step one because it is, it was painful, but it also gave me so much relief, so much relief. You know, some of the questions in step one are who was the alcoholic parent? Well, neither of my parents drank. Who was the hypochondriac? Who was the militaristic parent? You know, I'll tell you a story about my my dad, the militaristic parent, right? It was so bad that um, I could just remember just being, everyone kind of enjoying themselves in the house and the garage door would open. And the minute we heard that garage open, the seizing up in my heart, everyone got tense. Even the dog would go out of control. And my dad would come in and we'd all be lined up in the living room and say, how was your day, dad? You know, and then after, as he was taking his shoes off, we were, we were able to go and we would all go to our separate hiding places, basically. So one of the questions in there also is what are the scripts we were told, you know, uh, you know, for my dad, it was, we were better than other people or really actually disparaging other people in the neighborhood. You know, these neighbors were crazy. Um, my dad would talk about all the women in my mother's family as being crazy. Um, that is really, I'll talk about that a little bit later when I talk about what, what it's like right now. Well, I've come to, I'll just say right now, I've come to understand that um, these women were the ones that stood up to my dad. You know, my, my, uh, my nana, my mother's mother, uh, who I was taught my entire life was crazy and tried to hurt the family, was actually someone who was standing up to my dad and trying to protect us. I see that now as an adult. So my dad's scripts were, um, you're crazy. Uh, basically anything like crazy. You're, you know, you're going to wind up like your Aunt Barbara, all these different things. But this is the thing that I want to share. You know, what, is, what were parents' nicknames? You know, my dad called me a fairy. He would say, I threw a ball like a girl, and I don't mean to disparage First, girls falling, throwing balls, but that was what he would say. And, uh, you know, you walk like a fairy. I remember one of the first memories that came back to me when I was in my first six months in the program, being in Sears, Sears Roebuck. And uh, all the televisions, a wall of televisions. I can remember exactly where we were. A wall of televisions. And all of them are tuned to the same station. And... Uh, my little brother's there, I'm there, my mother's there, my dad's there, and the sales clerk walks away to help someone else. And my dad, uh, I can see it now, you know, my dad got angry, but he couldn't direct his anger at that person, so he would direct it at one of us. And I can't do it for you now, because I think it would be triggering for some people, but I, he stood up on his toes 
he bent both his wrists and he started walking around the area on TV to, and saying, I don't know. He, he had this way of saying, I don't know, which was the way he was making fun of me. And so when I was working with this counselor and we talk about what were the nicknames we grew up with, my, my dad's nickname for my mother was Putt. Now as an adult, I can see, you know, he said she was puttering around. I can see now as an adult that she was terrified of upsetting him. And so she just kind of moved around. My dad's nickname for my brother was Widget, which I think is kind of cute, right? My brother could never sit still. But my dad's nickname for me was Lump. And I remember telling this counselor that my dad's nickname for me was Lump for as long as I could remember. And I watched her start to tear up. And I had no affect, no feeling associated with it at all. It's easy for me to tell you the story right now because I'm disconnected from the feelings right now. But Lump, who calls a child Lump? A five-year-old boy lump you know where did it come from it came from terror and it didn't matter what the answer was I could, there was no way to please my dad so i would sit there and not say anything and if he asked me my quest, a question i might hum like mm, in agreement or if i didn't know what the right answer was i would say i don't know you know and so here's my dad at sears on his toes with his wrists bent going hmm i don't know I don't know. It's one of the first memories that came back in ACA for me. About three years ago, now that I've been in ACA for four years, I uh, my dad has this thing about, you know, I need to see your plane schedule, your flight schedule. And I was, I was flying in to see them and I sent them the pl my, my flight information like three times. And I'm on the phone with my dad and, he, you know, I say, you know, I'm getting in at 6.30 and he's like, what flight are you on? I said, I don't know, Dad. I don't know what flight I'm on. I'm, I'm getting in at 6.30. I'm a 48-year-old man in that, that memory. And he says, I don't know. And I, 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 I just shut down. You know, one of the ways I explain to sponsees is, you know, as a, uh, an alcoholic, when, I, when, I, when this hurts, you know, I reach for a substance to numb this, you know, as an Al-Anon, when this hurts, I get into dysfunctional relationships and I, you know, I focus on that instead of looking at this, you know, but what makes me an ACA is that when this happens, it's, it's like one of those, um, like sea enemies, like, you know, you see them and like something touches them and they, they shrill back down, you know, as if there's, as an ACA, what, what, what happens for me is that I, I, everything shuts down and goes deep inside, so it can't be hurt. I thought my dad was a monster. I thought my mom was a saint. You know, when my dad wasn't around, she was a lot of fun. She was so much fun that you know, she was a den mother. You know, as I was growing up, all the kids wanted to be uh, at my house because they wanted to be around my mom. My mom was always upbeat and smiling and cheerful. You know, but I... I it wasn't until I got into ACA and started looking at these questions, this other current that was running through this, you know, I'm a child of the seventies and there's a lot of fun music in the seventies and there's rock and all this stuff. But, you know, my favorite songs were my mother's favorite songs. 
the Carpenters, Melissa Manchester. Don't cry out loud. Just keep it inside and learn how to hide your feelings. That was one of my favorite songs as a, as a little boy. Both sides now. Send in the clouds. My mother had a t-shirt and it said, laugh and the world laughs with you. Cry and you cry alone. You know, now as an ACA, I'm getting goosebumps again. Now as an ACA, I can just see how much pain my mother was in. My mother's name for me was Pumpkin. That was her nickname for me. So I did have all of this positive um, love. What I thought as a boy was love. I thought my mother was a saint. My, we, you know, I was home that same trip where my dad asked me what flight I was on. I was home and we're getting lunch ready. And I go and put my dad's, I go put the vitamins out at everyone's seat. And my mom says, don't do that. My parents have been married 45, no, about 48. They've been married 46, 46, 47 years. Don't put the vitamins out. I said, mom, <laughs> you know, you know, he's going to scream at you. And she said to me, I know if I don't put the vitamins out, he'll scream at me for that and he won't find anything else to do. I didn't realize how sad that is. So as a boy, I, I was taught to believe I was the extension of my parents' emotional needs. It was my job to cheer my mother up. You know, we thought my mother, I was told my mother had back problems. Now I understand laying in a dark room for weeks is actually depression. I was taught, I believed that it was my job to cheer her up after something, after something my dad did. I believed that somehow I was supposed to protect her. Fantasies as a child of harm coming to my dad. My childhood hero was Tina Turner. Not necessarily because of the music, but because she, she got up and she left Ike. I'm a seven, eight-year-old boy, and that's my childhood hero. I also, now I see through ACA, believed that I was the extension of my dad's emotional needs because I could control his rage. Insane. But I thought if I just was one step ahead, you know, that I could, you know, protect him from blowing up my mom or blowing up my brother. Now, as an adult, I realized there was nothing I could do. Uh, he was going to find fault with someone just like he was in Sears. He was going to find fault with someone and you know, something would happen on the outside and his way of dealing would be to direct it towards us. I also learned in ACA that um, we lived like hostages. And part of that was I had a mistaken belief that my mother would protect me from my dad. I had the mistaken belief that my brother and I were in solidarity. And I had this image of like hostages kept in a basement. You know, every once in a while, my dad would let one of us out. And, you know, I'd like to believe in this kind of fantasy rose-colored world that that person lifted us all out, but I didn't. 
even as an adult, even in the last five years, I've heard my dad disparaging my brother or my mom. With my brother, I've stepped in and agreed. With my mom, I just kind of dodged the question. I still have that behavior. I said my mother's favorite songs were these 70s sad love songs. I was so happy when Lionel Richie and ABBA came along. Lionel Richie, going to my bedroom and listening to Lionel Richie or listening to ABBA, you know, there's this song on the, one of the albums, I Have a Dream. I would go to my room and close the door and listen to that song over and over and over again. So there were places in my life where I felt someone understood. There was some hope because all the adults in my life had abandoned me some way. The teacher that I thought I could trust, you know, did something. You know, the gym teacher, my best friend, if they found out that I may have a crush on them. All these people couldn't be trusted. I tell sponsees when they come into the program, I don't ask you to trust me. How could you anyway? I don't ask sponsees to trust me. I ask them to do the work. Just show up week after week for an hour and do the work. And they're free to go at any time. We have an agreement that if they don't show up two weeks in a row, that's okay. My role as a sponsor is to take you through the steps. If we are not working the steps, I am not your sponsor, but I am your fellow traveler. And that's okay. I mentioned before that my parents taught me to look for the solution outside of my, I've come to understand in this program that um, my parents aren't bad people. They are sick people, just like me. I am sick, just like them, if I don't work this program. And there are generations of sick people. In the fourth step, we, I, you know, Tony A, I take a blameless inventory of my parents. I didn't, I, what does that mean? You know, it's taking me, you know, twice through the steps to understand what it means for me. This is all my experience. I don't speak for ACA, but what it means for me is um, I hold them accountable, but not responsible. They are sick adult children, just like me. There's a word, there's an old word, uh, concupiscence. It's an old Catholic word that, um, that we are looking, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a word about, I am looking for something outside of myself to fill this hole. You know, in AA, we call it the, um, the God-sized hole. In NA, in the first few pages of the 12 and 12, it says, the, it calls it the awful emptiness. The awful emptiness, right? That's what's been passed down for me for generation to generation. In ACA, we call it the original soul wound, the original soul rupture. As a child, my soul was ruptured. And the solution as a child was to withdraw and create a wall of personalities to be this for this person and this for this person and this for this person, but not know who I am. My brother who I've been estranged, my brother's been estranged from the family for a long time, invited me for Thanksgiving. They were from New York. They moved to Florida. Now everyone lives in Las Vegas. And my brother said, I would like you to stay with us for four days. 
my first thought was, how am I going to explain this to dad? My dad's 82. Dad's going to be furious. I'm spending four days with you. So my solution, I'm 51 years old. My solution was, I'll just tack four days onto the end of my trip. I'll spend four days with my brother and four days with my dad, and everyone will be happy. Until one of my fellow travelers said, where's Stephen? (laughs) Is Stephen happy? I hear you, Stephen. I'm getting goosebumps again. I hear you. You know, what, what are goosebumps, right? It's that fight or flight, right? I'm so anxious, <laughs> right? I hear Stephen saying, I, I don't want to be anxious, so I'm going to take care of my brother. I don't want to feel anxious, so I'm going to take care of my dad. But who gets lost? Me. I get lost. One of the good things that came out of the first step for me is that family tree. You know, we have a tree on the front of the book, which is um, traits and the the fruits of those are character defects on the back, integrating traits and character assets. But in the first step, we draw a family tree. And I, just like I said, I am not an ACA. There are no alcoholics in my family. My parents hadn't had a drink since the sixties. I said, my family is not dysfunctional. But when I begin to fill out that tree and I see mental illness, mental illness, incest, incense, incarceration, incarceration, everywhere. That was the beginning of relief for me. And, and, and why? Because in that moment, I realized I was an itty bitty leaf, just a baby leaf on this giant generational tree of dysfunction. How could I have turned out any differently? How could my parents have turned out any differently? How could their parents have turned None of us could have turned out any, any differently unless I break the cycle by working a program of recovery. I talk a lot with sponsees and, in, and with my sponsor and sponsee sisters. We actually, um, I didn't ask someone to sponsor me until um, I guess it was the May of COVID. So, and the way she sponsors me is we sit in her kitchen with my sponsee sisters and we do the work together. So it's very much a fellow traveler model. But um, I talk all the time with my sponsee sister about the value of emotional pain. It says in our sixth step, the value of emotional pain. What is the value of emotional pain? You know, when sponsees are working the fourth step or when I work the fourth step, we answer all the questions, but we don't look at them. Pause, ask for quiet, set a timer for 15 minutes, write down everything comes to mind, say a little prayer of gratitude, set it aside. Don't look at it. And the same thing in the fifth step. Pause, ask for quiet, write down the, the, the answers, set it, say thank you and set it aside. So when we get to the the fifth step, um, hearing a fifth step. You know, I just had a sponsor go through a fifth step. We did it over three days. And I asked him at the beginning of the fifth step each day, what does this feel like for you? And it was interesting to watch him open up and then the next day close back down and then open up and close back down. And I've heard him, he's since spoken at a big meeting where I heard him talk about it. Uh, Remember I said, I don't have sponsors to trust me. And remember, I said my greatest fear as an adult child is that I would come unglued. But what I've learned, my experience, that the greatest fear of an adult child is actually being seen. 
how terrifying. I've hidden this true self for so long, so long. I'm terrified of it being seen. Why? Because everyone in my life ridiculed me. You know, maybe they bullied me, you know, terrified of being seen. And I've heard him share at large meetings where he's the speaker and he said, my greatest fear was that I would be seen and then I wouldn't be believed. Or I'd be believed and someone would yank the rug out from under me. Because that's my, that's Stephen's experience with adults and with people in his life. What is, before we can get to the value of emotional pain, what is, uh, how am I doing on time? I'm going to keep going until I get. In about 13 minutes, Steve. Oh my gosh. Good. Fantastic. How do I get to this place of the sixth step, the value of emotional pain, right? It says the six, the emotional pain is what connects us. It may be that hole in which love enters, right? In which the, my relationship with the power greater than myself can actually enter, enter me. I said to my psychoanalyst recently, I said, do you think the hole in me is attracted to the hole in um, this person that I'm seeing? And she said to me, what if it's the hole in you that's able to hold all the love they're giving you? I thought, wow, that's what I'm paying her for. But <laughs> steps four and five, right? The measure of loss. What is the measure of loss? Uh, one example. The measure of loss is an event in my life, anywhere in my life, and how my parent showed up or how an adult showed up. I'm, um, I'm um, a member of a class action suit against the Boy Scouts right now. Where were the adults? How an adult showed up. And I say to Sponsee is how a Hallmark parent would show up because we don't believe there are such things as functional parents. So I have to create a fictional functional parent. And that, that space in between, between where my parents showed up and what I needed as a child, that block is the measure of loss. And what do I do with this? I put it inside. And every little memory, every little memory of ridicule, of being hurt, of being abandoned, of trauma, abuse, and neglect, each one of those is a different side. And each one of those I have buried inside of me. So what is the value of emotional pain for me? The, the, I can reach outside of myself for something to make this go away, but a physical thing is not gonna fix a spiritual problem. If this was a self-help program, I could read this book and I wouldn't need to go to meetings, but this is a spiritual program. So reading this book alone doesn't work. Reading this book with other people in relationship that's a spiritual solution. Talking with fellow travelers, working the steps with a sponsor or a step study group, going to meetings, using the telephones. What do these things all have in common for me is relationship. It's in healthy relationships with people who can see me without judging me, people who can see me and believe in me, but believe me. Then I begin to trust. I begin to trust myself. I begin to trust other people. And then slowly these memories come up and the measure of pain 
I just did a workshop. I presented a workshop on stuck grief. Um, stuck grief. What is stuck grief? That's that's those are words out of our our step study book, or actually out of our big book, our red book too. Stuck grief. Grief is the natural outcome of loss. But as a child, I had to hide my loss. I couldn't cry. I'll give you something to cry about. I'll wipe those tears off your face. Or being bullied, I couldn't show that I was crying. So tears brought no relief as a child. Talking, sharing, not only didn't they bring belief, but they could, they brought abuse. So there was no relief. And so there was, the grief got stuck because I, I couldn't look at the loss. And what I've discovered for me, that the value of emotional pain, the value of looking at each one of these things, and I will spend a lifetime. We just had one of our daily readings within the last month talk about uh, we are in an unfinished spiritual state. I love that. My parents aren't bad people. They are just in an unfinished spiritual state. As an adult child, I have a fantasy that they will reach, <laughs> they will reach their omega. They will, but the reality is they will likely pass on not having reached there and still being in it. My point is that I am in an unfinished spiritual state. And as these memories come up, they come up to the extent that I'm ready to, I feel safe. They come up to the extent that I can trust, share them with my sponsee sisters, share them in a group, share them on the phone with a fellow traveler. And then what happens is then I'm, I'm able to feel the loss around people who love me and believe in me. And the grief comes unstuck. You know, our, our book talks about a glacier that's being moved. And when the grief comes unstuck, I start to cry. But this time, crying brings relief. The tears actually help. I feel better. You can see it in my body right now. I'm relaxing. I feel lighter. Because one of those bricks, the measure of loss, is out of my soul. I want to. I'm running out of time, so um, I was going to talk a little bit about the 11th step because it's the 11th month. Um, the only thing I'll say about that is what is, you know, I, I used to say what is God's will for me, and people would say back to me to live with gentleness, humor, love, and respect, and I would say, what is that? You know, up here, I have a concept of gentleness, humor, love, and respect. But why gentleness? Because I'm only speaking from my experience. There was so much. Everything was so hard growing up for that little boy. So harsh. But I have a concept of gentleness here, but I don't have it. It's not a spiritual experience yet. And what I found sponsoring... Uh, sponsoring men, I only sponsor men in this program, sponsoring men or working with a step study in hearing their critical parents come out in helping them see that and work with their loving parent, encouraging them to be gentle with themselves. That has come back on me. And now I've learned how to be gentleness myself to the point of which my sponsor says, I am gentleness. I live in a spiritual experience of gentleness, not all the time. That's why we have a seven step and I have shortcomings but I live in, a, in an increasing st spiritual state of gentleness. Th this last year, uh, 
humor. Why humor? Because everything was serious. Every little thing could have set off a landmine, right? I know what humor is, but it's been in the last year that I've had this lightness. My um, the sponsees I'm working with now say, "I wish I had you in your gentle this year, not your not your humor here," you know. But now I'm able to have this lightness and joke about these things. That doesn't mean they're not serious. That doesn't mean they're not terrible. That doesn't mean it's not generational trauma and abuse and neglect. It doesn't mean that I'm light making light of it. What it means that I know I have a relationship with people I can trust and who love me. And that's the next one, love. I have a concept of what love means. And I, I would say maybe four or five months ago, I would say, I don't know what love and respect mean, but I do know that they are somewhere down the road and I will get there and that's good enough. I just recently, it was brought to my attention that I do have an experience of, of love. Um, there is a word called uh, compersion. I didn't know what that word was. I'm in a relationship where this, uh, I was working with a therapist, having dinner with a therapist who's not my therapist. And he said to me, why do you feel this way? Why do you feel this way? Why do you feel this way? And I said, I'm just genuinely happy and exciting to see this partner living their best life. And he said, that is compersion. It's the opposite of jealousy and possessiveness. It is the genuine experience of taking joy in someone else's experience, even if I can't participate in it. And, and, and so it's dawned on me. And this is the last couple of weeks, I am having the spiritual experience of love. Respect, well, up here, I have a concept of respect. It means self-care, taking time from, with my inner children. I wanna end with something about my inner children, taking time with my inner children. Um, all these things I can be doing for myself. It's not a spiritual experience yet for me. It's a thought, it's okay, I'm okay. I will end with this because um, <laughs> it's four days into the 11th month and I hear everyone's talking about the 11th step. You know, the thing about the 11th step, if you remember the Maui story is that um, I think it's optional. <laughs> if someone said to you or said to me, I don't think I wanna do a fourth step. I'm, I'm good. I don't need to do a fifth step. I'm good. I would say you're crazy. Do whichever, no, I wouldn't say you're crazy. I would say good for you, but I would think they were crazy. And yet for the last seven years, I think that the 11th step is somehow optional. And the other thing about the 11th step that I always forget is the first part and the last part. And that's where I wanna leave us. Before meditation, I know meditation and prayer, and I have an inkling of what God's will for me is, it's to live with gentleness, humor, love, and respect. But before I can sit in meditation, there's a 10th step. And I love the questions in our 10th step, right? If I just pick one of those questions and use it for a week, that's, progress. But in order to be in meditation, I have to do a 10th step because in the 10th step, I take an inventory and my favorite part of the 10th step is turning it over. I turn it over to my higher power, to the universe, whatever word I'd like to use. And so when I'm sitting in meditation, I'm not thinking about that argument. I'm not thinking about the argument I want to have. I'm not thinking about the argument I just had. I'm not thinking about what I'm having for dinner because I've turned it over and I'm able to sit in this stillness and after I've sat in this stillness for a while, then I can pray. You know, I think of our serenity prayer. God grant me the serenity, right? The serenity comes first. God grant me the serenity 
to accept the things I cannot, people I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom, acceptance, courage, wisdom. I'm praying for acceptance, courage, wisdom, but I need serenity. And this is where I'm going to leave you. The last part of that is um, what Catholics, I grew up in New York, so we're culturally Catholic and Jewish, but uh, Catholics call um, contemplation. And in the AA 12 and 12 too, it talks about it. Some of us might have this rare experience of, of the transcendent. Even my, my, uh, my, one of my sponsors um, is in the Eastern tradition and it's called Sumadhi. It is the direct experience of something transcendent that I cannot put into words. Conscious contact. I can't, the thing about conscious contact is I can't turn it on. Self, the 10th step is an action, self-examination. Meditation is an action. I park myself in a chair. Prayer is an action. I know how to say the words, but I can't create the action of conscious contact. That's why I seek to improve it, right? But this is where I want to leave you. In those fleeting moments where I believe I have had an image of conscious contact, it is here with my true self, where the divine dwells in me, in all my little inner children, my inner teenager, they're all there too. They're all there sitting like around a campfire with a higher power, safe. Thank you for allowing me to share.